You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 284 of the podcast. Today is... Thursday, December 23rd, 2021, and tomorrow is, naturally, Christmas Eve. So it is Christmas Eve Eve as I record this podcast episode, and I notice that the week of Christmas, really, actually, the week of Thanksgiving through the end of the year, the listening habits of people change. And I think this is really interesting. I notice it in myself. The week of Thanksgiving, I'm more pensive. I don't know about most people, but I would assume so. I'm more pensive. The week after Thanksgiving, I'm thinking about interactions with family. You're still recovering from the holidays. And you're, with any luck, you're thinking about what are you thankful for? And that didn't stop on Thanksgiving. You didn't get your fill of being thankful. You continue trying to be full of thanks. But that carries forward into the Christmas season, and Christmas has its own tone and tenor. And then once Christmas is over, not to jump ahead, but we're going to be thinking about the end of the year. We only have so many days, less than a week, until 2022, once we get to Christmas. And then our pensiveness turns on what just happened in the past year. You start reflecting on the year which has passed, and you start thinking about what do you want in the coming year. And all of this is I think good, decent, reasonable, nothing to be worried about, nothing to be concerned about. I have noticed as I try to be intentional in reflecting on what's happened over the past year with a little bit of a tradition that we have in our house where we go back over our journals, over our personal organizers, I try to compile everything into a bullet-pointed list, try to organize the information into what were the major events, good, bad, indifferent, what were the good, the bad, and the ugly things that happened over the course of the year. And very often that is a more difficult task than you might imagine because something happens that you think was really, really bad because you had an emotional reaction to it in the moment. It wasn't what you wanted. It wasn't what you expected. You didn't like it. It was very difficult. But then looking at it from more of a bird's eye view at the end of the year in connection with other things that happened before and happened after and are still happening, you have to be a little bit more circumspect. You have to be a little more careful to throw things into this category or that category. Was this really such a good thing? Because it had these other baggages 
attendant. Was that really such a bad thing? Because if not for that, then this wouldn't have happened. And so on and so forth. But however long and drawn out that process is for most of us, or however under the surface bubbling that is for, I would say, probably the majority of us, we are all in a little bit of a different state of mind, I think, from the week before Thanksgiving until the end of the year. And then once the new year hits, people have come to their conclusions, whether those conclusions are all valid or whether they're experimental still or whether they are confirmed. People make up their minds about what kind of a person they want to be moving forward, what kind of a person they don't want to be moving forward. And typically that extra headspace, regardless what particular decisions people have made one way or the other, that extra bandwidth causes people, I think, to go back into listening to things which are not going to clutter their thoughts. They're trying to free up bandwidth, I would say, what I see in just the short time, the couple of years that I've been podcasting, this past year, especially in earnest since October of 2020, podcasting again in earnest. That is what I have noticed, is that people free up bandwidth through the tail end of the year, and then come the new year, you start seeing people getting back into listening to other things to occupy their thoughts, to give them something to chew on, to meditate on, to ponder, to consider. Certainly with my podcast. Now, there might be other types of podcasts or other types of content and media and food for thought that people gravitate more towards through the end of the year. But if you are like me, well, if you're like me, you record a podcast and still try to do that most days towards the end of the year. But if you're like me, you're not listening to quite as much in the way of audiobooks and podcasts, and you're not reading quite as much in the way of heavy, dense, really thought-provoking stuff. You're thinking more about your personal life, about your family, about your friends, about your work situation, about what your resolutions are going to be, what should they be? What are other people's resolutions? Are those good resolutions? Should I do what those people are doing? Is that good fit for me? Is that a good fit for them? Or are they just putting on a convincing act? And so if you're like me, you maybe don't want to talk too much in depth about Marxism on Christmas Eve Eve. And you maybe don't want to talk too much in depth about really heavy things so we're going to keep it fairly light. And by light, I mean, we're not going to avoid talking about Marxism, but we're going to talk about it in more of a broad overview, relaxed sort of a way. How's that? An article has been sent to me by J.P. Chavez. And this article has to do with Marxism, and I appreciate the article, and I find it thought-provoking, and I feel like it does tie in with the kinds of resolutions and reflections 
which are so common to the end of the year. Is Marxism Self-Defeating or Self-Fulfilling? By Sukhail Nyazov, December 20th, 2021. That might be an odd thing to say. <laughs> In fact, I'm, I'm quite sure that is an odd thing for me to say. Garrett, how many of us are reflecting on this past year and asking this question, is Marxism self-defeating or self-fulfilling? Well, I'll explain what I mean. In this article, which you should read, which I'm not going to read for you, but you can read, I'll put a link in the podcast description. Nyazov, the author, explores the predictions that Karl Marx made 150 years ago. That you would have inevitably Marxism being fulfilled across the world as capitalism provoked the ire of the people. The people rose up, workers of the world united and threw off the shackles of the moneyed class, the robber barons, the consumers of other people's produced wealth. Karl Marx was just sure that inevitably communism, essentially socialism, would prevail and that the revolution couldn't be avoided. It could only be gentled. It could only be eased in its birth pangs, but it was going to be born in every society, in every culture, in every context, if given enough time. This was a very evolutionary uh, type of presumption. Marxism, as we know it, being the fittest, the most fit to survive, would adapt itself and replace and consume and uh, push out of the way a clunkier and less fit, uh, more overgrown form of economic theory and organization. And to justify his conclusion on that, Marx pointed to current economic conditions and complained about the treatment of workers, complained about inequality, wealth inequality. He complained about lack of political freedom. And as Sukhail Nyazov, the author of this article at Public Discourse, points out, Marx assumed that the conditions he was observing were going to be static. They were going to be fixed. This is what it is. This is what it's always going to be. These things aren't going to change. And so this is what has to happen now. Interestingly enough, Karl Marx could have been the ghost of Christmas future in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And meanwhile, capitalistic societies, moneyed classes, could be Ebenezer Scrooge imploring the ghost of Christmas future to give him a second chance. Let me try again. I will keep Christmas every year without fail and try to make things right. Scrooge had been indifferent 
to the suffering of orphans and widows and poor people, essentially, and had been very callous in saying, if they're going to die, let them do it quickly and decrease the surplus population. Very cold, very brusque, very unfeeling. And by the end of the night, as Scrooge is taken to his past and also looking at Christmas present, what are the things that are being said and done with regards to him by people in his circle that he doesn't maintain a good relationship with? How do they really feel about him? And how could he be engaging with them in a more fruitful, productive, healthy, holy way? And also Christmas future, a Christmas future in which he's not going to live forever. At a certain point, he's going to die. And he's going to die alone if something doesn't change. And when he dies alone, if something doesn't change with the way that he's related to people, no one is going to be sad about it. Nobody's going to mourn his passing. And this thought, above all thoughts, is terrifying to Scrooge. And because that prospect of dying alone, unmourned, is so terrifying, Ebenezer Scrooge is as good as his word. In fact, better. He's better than his word. And he goes above and beyond what anybody would have expected in changing his wicked ways and changing his cold-hearted, calloused approach to the people in his life. He starts engaging in helpful ways and trying to build them up and trying to take care of his employee, Bob Cratchit, which in turn helps Tiny Tim to not die. He engages with his nephew, whose mother loved him and is able to have a beautiful relationship with his nephew and his nephew's wife moving forward. He engages with a charitable organization that had been approaching him asking for a donation and gives much more than they would have dared dream. And all of that is to say the vision of what was going to happen was not static. It was not fixed. It was not unchangeable. And one of the interesting things to me in Sukhail Nyazov's article here is his touching on historicism. Historicism being we presume to know what is going to happen based on what has happened. The tendency to regard historical development as the most basic aspect of human existence. That is historicism. The theory that social and cultural phenomena are determined by history. In other words, this is what has always happened throughout history, and this is what is always going to happen. And to be clear, I like history. I enjoy history. I enjoy reflecting on what's happened in the past in my own life. We spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time trying to go back over the past year, compile all of the events, talk about what were the good, the bad, and the ugly things that happened. But you have to recognize the more history you read and the more different angles different historians have and bring to the history of a given subject, 
whether it's a person, whether it's a nation, whether it's whatever, whatever the history is, you have to recognize that you don't know all of what went into things. You don't know all of what has gone into things being such as they are right now. And that fact can be extrapolated backwards ad infinitum. You know some of what happened. You, you have some dots on the map, but you don't necessarily know always that you have all the dots. And more to the point, even the dots you have, you don't necessarily always understand however much you want to study history because you're a finite being with a limited mind you don't necessarily understand how all these dots connect together how do all of these things work together god understands how all these things work together and for our part god's given us his word and for those of us who are in christ he's given us his spirit and between god's word and god's Holy Spirit residing in us, being our inheritance, we are able to understand as much as finite creatures are able to understand or need to understand. But humility is essential. Humility is the difference between looking at historical trends and saying, on the one hand, this is what it is, I understand, I know best. Look at me, everyone be very impressed with how smart I am. Meanwhile, Grandpa from The Princess Bride says, yes, yes, you're very smart, now shut up. <laughs> On the one hand, we boast and say, I've got it all figured out. This is what's going to happen. On the other hand, we say, well, here's what I know, and here's what I expect, and we'll see. And God willing, we'll live and do this or that. Because we may not fully understand what has happened any more than we can fully know what is going to happen or what is happening right now. We, we can only process so much information. We only have so much bandwidth. And so... To give a little bit away here on the question of is Marxism self-defeating or is it self-fulfilling, this article by Sukhail Nyazov, he talks about how Karl Marx throws out this prediction that the communist revolution is inevitable, it's going to happen everywhere, and it's going to succeed, and you can't stop it. And you might have democracy leading to socialism, leading to communism. But these things are all just, they're, they're headed towards the terminus, and that's what it's going to be, and that's what it is, and there's no stopping it. But as Nyazov points out, more developed, prosperous, uh, free countries like America, like Great Britain, took these ideas and the ruling class and many cases, said what Otto von Bismarck is said to have said, and that is that it's better to make a revolution rather than suffer it. Which is just another way of saying, rather than allow 
a Bolshevik Marxist revolution to overthrow your government and institute full-blown communism. If you lead the charge, then you can make sure that you're on the right end of the revolutionary forces. You start the revolution and steer it in a positive direction, or at least a less destructive direction. Otto von Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany, introduced the welfare state in the West. Or he was one of the first to introduce the welfare state in the West. And as the author of this article points out, the welfare state and so much of what we see and what libertarians and conservatives very often be, be, bemoan, what we are concerned about is that gradually we are getting to communism, little by little, bit by bit. When the President of the United States of America can issue a broad sweeping mandate that all businesses with more than 100 employees have to make sure that their employees are vaccinated or else they'll be fined out of business, fined into bankruptcy. What exactly is the difference between our society and a communistic one in which the state controls and owns the means of production? You make a sweeping, broad rule like that, and what exactly is the difference between us and a communist country? You're, you're indirectly going to terminate a whole lot of people from their jobs unless they get vaccinated. You're going to shut down businesses that refuse to bend the knee to you. What you're describing sounds a lot like communism. And so the question then is, have we avoided communism on the one hand, or have we implemented it just through peaceful means with the ruling classes? Have we made radical chic into a vehicle for bringing about half a dozen of one, six of the other. You call it this, I call it that. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. And frankly, the violent, repressive regimes that we think of more readily, Stalin's regime in the Soviet Union, Mao's regime in China, South American, Central American, socialist and communist dictatorships. We look at those and we think, that's horrifying. It's horrifying that you would have this strong man willing to arrest, jail, torture, execute, banish to Siberia or equivalent, create conditions in which there are major shortages of necessary goods or abundant excesses of other goods because the five-year plan was we create this much. Is the demand there? Well, no. Okay, well, then you've created too much and the price is going to collapse and people are going to be impoverished and people are going to starve and people are going to be homeless and people are going to be miserable. You know, that's so terrifying that a lot of the powers that be in the West, in America and in Europe, said, oh, no, 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 you don't have to threaten us. We'll do it. We'll do it ourselves. Gradually, little by, 
little. Is that enough? Is that enough Marxism? Is that enough communism? More. More. I want more communism. The radical leftists have said again and again. Well, there's a question of does that fulfill what Marx was talking about here? Maybe that is the gentling of these birth pangs. Or is it self-defeating? To where once you've pulled back the curtain and you've looked at the Wizard of Oz flipping levers and turning knobs and pushing buttons, once you know that that's what's going on, the left loses its power. The Marxists no longer have that upper hand anymore. Does it become self-defeating? We in America see violent revolutions and poverty and human suffering and oppression in communist countries, and we say, I don't want that. Well, it's a little bit of both, right? And funny enough, one of the things that a careful student of history comes to realize is that it's complicated. Can Marxism be self-defeating and self-fulfilling all at the same time? Does it defeat itself in its fulfillment of itself? Does it fulfill itself in its defeating of itself? Well, yes. And quite frankly, I think the only thing that really saves us from that feedback loop is divine intervention. Put simply, it's so interesting to me that Elon Musk just sat down with the Babylon Bee for an interview. And it's a long interview and it's very different because the Babylon Bee is very different. They're their own special breed. And Elon Musk is very different and he's his own special breed. But you have this combining of two very unexpected forces in our culture right now. On the one hand, you have this billionaire from South Africa who invented uh, PayPal and Tesla Motors and SpaceX and the Boring Company. And he likes to weigh in. And he's doing some crazy science fiction things that could be very, very interesting, but also uh, not entirely safe. But also that's part of the charm of Elon Musk is that he is a, a little bit of a mad scientist to some extent. But lots and lots of money, a big cult-like following of people who are just mesmerized by what it is that he's doing. He's a wizard in their minds. And he's got all this money, but he he seems very genuine. He seems very off the cuff and very straightforward and very unassuming and unconcerned. And it could be a very sophisticated act, uh, but who can you not say that about, right? We all <laughs> wear masks from time to time. We all put up a facade from time to time. Uh, not all of us create world-changing companies and have hundreds of billions of dollars and 
get to do fun things like invent electric cars, perfect electric cars, put up basically a global Wi-Fi system, global internet system, try to go to Mars. I mean, there's all this stuff that if he is putting on an act and pretending to be somebody he's not necessarily, uh, it's still very, very engaging. And on the other hand, you've got these satirists with the Babylon Bee who are talking with him and there's a nervousness on their part, obviously. Like, we can't believe that you actually are sitting down with us for an interview. Like, this like, really? really? Are you sure? Is this really happening? Like, this is cool. What do you think about this? Well, what do you think about this? Well, what do you think about this? And what's so interesting is the more you hear this back and forth conversation between the Babylon Bee and Elon Musk, the more of a conservative, not like ultra conservative, but the more of a conservative Elon Musk sounds like. He sounds like he is a conservative, which is so interesting because you wouldn't think somebody who is making the Tesla vehicle and trying to get us to Mars and inventing PayPal, you wouldn't think of him as being conservative. And yet the very fact that he's sitting down with the Babylon Bee at all says that he looks at wokeness, for instance, and the radical left in this country, and he's very, very concerned. And as smart of a guy, as wealthy and influential and powerful as Elon Musk is, I think he realizes the only check on these radical leftists is going to come from people who believe in objective truth, that there is a fixed objective truth, that there is such a thing as reality, and it isn't just whatever we feel from moment to moment, instant to instant. There is such a thing as goodness. There is such a thing as right conduct. Here's how you treat people. Here's how you don't treat people. And that apart from that, fixed standard of what is right and what is true, what is good, what is honorable, apart from that being fixed and there being a significant cohort in society that believes that, the radical left is going to destroy civilization. That's the big concern about communism, is that it is a very dehumanizing, decivilizing force. We're going to impose this rigid, mechanical conformity on everyone. Everyone will get with the program, or else they will be destroyed ruthlessly. It's no wonder that communism found its first expression, really truly, in Russia. You had Eastern Orthodoxy, and you had a kind of Christianity, I would argue, in the East, which was very content for the majority of people to be dehumanized prior to communism. And then communism is implemented because the woke, if you will, of Russia's aristocracy 
were filled with self-loathing and a desire to do penance, which means that they didn't have a very good understanding of God's grace, or didn't understand it at all. They wanted to do a kind of penance, and you had the serfs and the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren ad infinitum of serfs who had been an underclass for so long and they were tired of being thrown into the meat grinder of European wars thinking, well, it can't get any worse than it already is. And we want to be like America. We want to be like France. So we have to have our own revolution. We may not have a George Washington. We may not have a Robespierre or Napoleon, but we are going to have our own revolution. And then they get Lenin and they get Stalin and they get the rest. And communism, radical leftism, always sees a strong belief in God as a threat because your individual conscience might erode the common welfare as they see it. The common welfare is dependent on complete submission to the needs of the community, to the needs of society, to the needs of the state as a representative of the people. And it becomes this blank check for people doing whatever's right in their own eyes so long as they can say they're doing it in the name of the people. They can do anything they want. They can destroy anyone they want. They can take anything they want. They can use whoever they want, however they want. When a Christian steps into that space and says, no, that's wrong. I can't participate in this. And also I would call you to repentance. That erodes fear of the all-powerful state. That erodes trust in the all-powerful state. Because if you believe that man is sinful, possessing a sinful nature, then you don't assume he's going to be perfect or angelic. You assume that he's going to be making some sinful decisions. He's going to be saying some sinful things. He's going to be doing some sinful things. He's going to need repentance. And you're not going to put yourself completely under his power. You're going to be independent for the sake of wisdom, for the sake of godliness, to the greatest extent possible. Dependable, but independent. Owe no man anything except for the debt of love. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. And yet, it's so interesting to me, Elon Musk, as much of a futurist as he is, sees the handwriting on the wall, and he marks out in this interview, which you should listen to, you should watch, he marks out wokeness as divisive, hateful, an existential threat to civilization, human civilization. And even there, though, I mean, for conservatives, for those of us who are very, very concerned by this woke business and the left, it would be easy for us to do the same thing that Karl Marx was doing, where he looks at the conditions and he says, this is what it's always going to be. So therefore, the left is going to win in the end. Therefore, Jesus must be coming back next week because I don't see how any of this is going to be reversed and be changed and altered. And if it keeps on like this, we're all doomed. Well, yes, and also no, but God. And again, with the divine intervention piece, you know, there's this funny moment 
And Musk doesn't laugh very often during this interview. The Babylon Bee guys actually laugh. You could tell they're just delighted. They're delighted that they're having this sit-down chat with Elon Musk. They just can't believe their good fortune. And obviously they admire him. They laugh far more than he does. But at a certain point, one of the members of the Babylon Bee staff who's interviewing him says, hey, can you do us a solid, actually, and uh, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And that catches Elon Musk off guard, obviously. He laughs. And I don't know what his answer was beyond that. There was a fuller version of the interview that is behind a paywall, I think. And I'm tempted to subscribe just so I can get at the full version. I watched as much as was free. But, you know, suppose to yourself that we presume a kind of fixed inevitability to destruction. Elon Musk, billionaire, playboy, wealthy, does what he wants. He doesn't know Jesus. And maybe he isn't going to come to saving faith in Christ. Maybe not. Only God knows. But Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was a wealthy man, a friend of Jesus. Jesus never said it was impossible for a wealthy man to come to faith in them. He just said it would be very difficult. You, you might be giving up quite a lot, possibly. Like admitting that you are wrong on some things might be a difficult pill to swallow when you're so used to everyone pandering to you, kowtowing, trying to flatter you, or resenting you, trying to make up stuff, trying to maliciously attack you, so they can get at some of what you've got. You're going to have to potentially be vulnerable to being rejected by the people who've idolized you if you confess your sins and repent of them and turn away from them. And that might be really, really hard. As much as you are annoyed by it and it's tiresome, when push comes to shove, could you do without it? Could you do without that fawning of people all over you? Or is that scary? Is that frightening to you to think about that being taken away or given away. And on the other hand, if all of a sudden you're going to turn the other cheek and you're going to be a Christian to people who are trying to get at you, like Elizabeth Warren railing at Elon Musk, you need to pay your fair share of taxes. Well, wait a second. You don't pay any taxes, Elizabeth Warren, as Musk points out, if you could die of irony, <laughs> he says, she'd be dead. She doesn't pay any taxes. In fact, she lives off of the taxpayers. He, meanwhile, pays more taxes than any person in history who's not paying their fair share of taxes. And I'm not, I don't mean to imply that if Elon Musk were to become a Christian, he wouldn't tweet back at Elizabeth Warren. I'm totally fine with, I mean, you're welcome, right? Like, I'm sure you're all relieved to know. I'm okay with Elon Musk tweeting back at Elizabeth Warren. But I, I don't see anything conflicting there, is what I mean. I don't see anything conflicting between coming to faith in Jesus and engaging these radical leftists in our government. But it is interesting that you have 
this growing concern, this growing consensus that radical leftism is a cancer. These people are crazy and they are willing to burn it all down. And then you get somebody like an Elon Musk and not to put too much weight on him, but take this as a microcosm, take this as as potentially a sign of things to come. You get somebody like an Elon Musk saying, you know what, like we're in some really serious trouble, not from climate change, but from the fact that people are not having enough children. Last year, the population of the United States of America grew by 0.1%. 0.1. That is the lowest growth rate in our country's history. 0.1%. The cold, hard fact is that if we don't grow population-wise, we will have very hard times in, let's say, 20 years, when all of a sudden there's a whole lot less young people available to replace folks who have gotten too old to work and are retiring. Not only will they not be replaced in the workforce, but there won't be enough people to take care of, to literally be caretakers for old people who are retiring and leaving the workforce. Forget us all going up in a puff of smoke due to climate change, due to burning fossil fuels. The real existential crisis is wokeism and people not having enough children. Says the South African billionaire, technologist, futurist to the guys at Babylon B, which by fact of his sitting down and chatting with them tells me that he's looking at some different historical trends maybe than Karl Marx was. And it isn't to say that Karl Marx didn't have any idea, but the certitude with which he prophesied a global communist revolution was misplaced. You know, that's the great thing about building up antibodies is you get exposed to a weakened strain of something and then your body learns how to fight it off. The Russians, by virtue of Eastern Orthodoxy never having a Protestant Reformation, by virtue of the centuries-long repression of the descendants of Vikings who founded Russia, their aristocracy repressing the serfs, the serfs not having a rich intellectual heritage of critical thinking, questioning debate, back and forth, examining things, cross-examining things. They didn't have a very good intellectual, spiritual, emotional immune system in Russia when Marxism came along. And meanwhile, we've been getting exposed to a weakened strain of communism here in America for a century or more. And there is nothing which says that by God's grace, we can't fight it off. Put more simply, if God sees fit to heal our land, if we would turn from our sins and seek his face, there is nothing which prevents God 
from delivering us from evil here. And it is evil. Communism is evil, period, plain and simple. Doesn't mean you can't have evil other places. You can have evil anywhere people are. In fact, you will have evil anywhere people are. It's like American Express. It's everywhere you want to be. Evil is. But it is to say we can be delivered from this evil of wokeness and all the rest by God's grace, by God's power. In Jesus, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And I'm not saying we need billionaires and technologists and futurists to all become Christians. But I would say that a kind of common grace may be manifesting where you have even those types saying, you know what, let's chat, let's talk. I want to support you guys and I want to encourage you guys because what you're doing is really necessary and it's really important. Your cohort, your cohort believes in something. Your cohort believes very strongly that we need to fear God and not fear man. And lo and behold, that's all that stands between us and wokeness is fearing God instead of fearing man. Wokeness and the black abyss of nothingness. I would say, check out the interview with Elon Musk at the Babylon Bee. Check out this article that my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, sent me by Sukhail Nyazov at the Public Discourse, the Journal of the Witherspoon Institute. I'll put a link to both in my podcast episode description. By God's grace, we will endure. Look to the end. This is not the end. God willing, we live and do this or that. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.